and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. Elizabeth Anscombe, FBA, was one of the most important moral philosophers of the 20th century. In this episode, Jane Heal, FBA, and Dr. Rachel Wiseman discuss highlights of her exceptional life, including working with Wittgenstein, pioneering action theory, and taking a stand against the US president. I am Jane Heal. I've taught philosophy at the University of Newcastle, and more recently at Cambridge. And my great thinker is Elizabeth Anscombe, a notably deep-thinking and influential philosopher of the second half of the last century, who was also a striking and interesting person. Anscombe was born in Ireland in 1919, but her parents soon moved back to England, where, in 1937, aged 18, she went up to St Hugh's, Oxford, to study classics and philosophy. At Oxford, Anscombe met, in 1938, another philosopher, Peter Geach, He was, like her, at the time, receiving instruction prior to being received into the Roman Catholic Church. They married in 1941, and they had seven children. 1941 was also the year in which Anscombe completed her degree. She was awarded a first and went on to do research. In 1942, some of the support for this came from a studentship awarded by Newnham College, Cambridge. So she went over to Cambridge to study there, and attended lectures by Wittgenstein. He was already well known for his early work, the Tractatus, and some of his very different later work was circulating informally and provoking interest. She found his thought immensely exciting and insightful. She became a pupil and was a close friend of his until his death in 1951. He left many unpublished writings, mainly in German, and as one of his literary executors, she undertook some of the responsibility for making these writings available, not just in German, but also to English-speaking philosophers. And to this end, she translated a good deal of his work herself, most notably the volume we have under the title Philosophical Investigations. It is her lucid and gripping version of this famous book, which is the one so familiar around the world today. From 1946 until 1970, Elizabeth Anscombe was based at Somerville College, Oxford, first as a research fellow, later as a teaching fellow. In 1970, she was elected to a chair of philosophy at Cambridge, the one which had been previously held by Wittgenstein. She occupied this until her retirement in 1986. After retirement, she continued to live mainly in Cambridge and died there in 2001. Anscombe was known for what, in the first part of her life at least, were considered eccentricities. So she mainly wore trousers, and on being told at the entrance to a restaurant that women in trousers were not allowed in, she just took the trousers off. And she remained all her life Elizabeth Anscombe, never answering to Mrs Geach. The works for which she is famous show the range of topics which interested Anscombe. So there is the short but immensely rich book Intention from 1957, which is about what it is to act intentionally and how we understand and justify our actions. Her paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, 1958, challenged prevailing assumptions about how ethical questions should be tackled. Her inaugural lecture in Cambridge, 1971, was called Causality and Determination and shows her interest in metaphysical issues. Another very much discussed paper is The First Person, 
from 1975, where she considers how the word I works and how each of us knows about what we are doing and feeling. There are several volumes of collected papers which assemble many other insightful and provocative discussions of questions in these areas and on the history of philosophy too. So to consider Anscombe's work further, I have here with me Rachel Wiseman from the University of Liverpool. Rachel works at the intersection of the philosophy of mind, action and ethics and has thought and written a good deal about Anscombe. So, Rachel, what do you think are some of the central ideas in this famous book, Intention, which is, I would guess, the most widely read of her books, Mm -hmm. possibly the most influential? It's such a dense and difficult book. For people who haven't seen it, it's terribly short, isn't it? It's only 100 pages long or so. And it looks superficially very accessible because it's got no technical jargon there's no footnotes doesn't seem to be any sort of special skill required to read it but it is incredibly difficult to work out what's going on in it so the book's called intention and she starts off by saying there's three different cases in which we might use the word intention and she says there's intentional action And there's the intention with which something is done. So that's when you might give a reason for doing something. And then there's intention for the future. And she says it's a really difficult thing to work out how these three uses are connected. Because if you think about it, you know, one is about action, something out in the world. One is about justification and one is about something mental. And you think, well, how are these three uses connected to one another? So that's the sort of problematic of the book, if you like. One way to think about what's so radical about what she does is one way you might approach that problem, that question as a philosopher, is to try to work out what kind of properties of mind intentional states have and what properties of action intentional actions have. And then you might try and make some connection between them, some kind of causal connection or justifying connection. And that's, I suppose, the standard way in which philosophers have approached that sort of inquiry. But what Anscombe tries to show us in that book, I think, is that that's completely misguided, (laughs) that that's not the sort of concept that intention is. It's not like the name of a property that certain things can have or not have. It's rather what she calls a form of description. So the task of the book is to describe that formal order, she says, that anything is going to belong to if the word intention is appropriate. And I guess like the thing that always blows my mind about that book is that she has this incredible insight that she can illuminate that order by describing our ordinary practice of asking for and giving reasons, of saying, why are you doing that? It sounds really obvious, you know, oh, well, let's look at the question why. But actually, I think to have the ability to see that, okay, if we describe how the question why works, that's going to illuminate this order and that's going to solve the problem. I just think it's it's incredible, isn't it? Here's it in her own words. What distinguishes actions which are intentional from those which are not? The answer that I shall suggest is that they are actions to which a certain sense of the question why is given application. The sense is, of course, that in which the answer, if positive, gives a reason for acting. But this is not a sufficient statement because the question, what is the relevant sense of the question why and what is meant by reason for acting, are one and the same. 
So that's something she says early on in the book, which leads into the territory you've mentioned. But the way that these issues about what makes an action intentional, something a person really does and is responsible for, rather than something that just happens to them. What's the difference between my arm going up and me raising my arm? Oh, the difference is that my raising my arm is a matter of the going up of my arm being caused by some mental event. And this is the conception of things that she rejects. And she presses, just as you said, the importance of the question, why? Why are you doing that? That's the thing that I can give an intelligible account of what I'm up to, which is often something rather complicated with many elements, both forward-looking and perhaps even backward-looking. That's what she brings out. So it's not just a question of some quasi-scientific causal order, but a question of kinds of justification and the ways they interlock in a sort of intricate, complicated pattern of a whole person's life. So what you get is a sense of the complexity of human life and the way... You can't understand one aspect of it without being aware of other aspects and what the person could say about them and the whole complexity of the setting. One of the things she says, which I think is very profound and perhaps not really fully taken on board yet, is that reason and explanation, these answers to the question why in the right sense, can look backwards as well as forwards. So now standard theory of action imagines that an action is always aimed at producing something in the future that you can envisage before you do it and where you choose to move your limbs about in a certain way or manipulate tools or whatever it may be in order to produce the result that is envisaged. And of course for some projects the model more or less fits. I mean, if I'm cooking a meal for myself or building a house, then there is a thing in the future which movement of my hands or whatever will bring into being. But she points out that there are things that we do where her example is revenge. Why did you kill that chap? Because he killed my brother. I acted out of revenge. That makes the thing intelligible. Now, let's take a slightly nicer example for a moment. Let's take producing memorial to someone one loved. Suppose you're planning a memorial service. Of course, there is a forward-looking aspect, as there is with revenge. After all, one's act- well, our actions develop over time. The action is done in the future. But if you're putting on a memorial service, the point of putting on the memorial service is to bring to life the richness of the person you're commemorating. So in order to do the thing rightly, you've got to delve back into the past. And the point of the action is to realise more deeply the meaning of what it was that was going on in the past. It's not a question of creating something that you've envisaged beforehand in every detail, what it will be like. Because if you're going to do a good memorial service, there's got to be an element of creativity and discovery of what the person meant to you in what you do. You simply cannot understand it without understanding the whole richness and complexity of human life and its backward-looking aspect as well as its forward-looking aspect. And I think what's come out in the way that you've told that story is how incredibly productive this shift in aspect is and what it can allow philosophers to do. I mean, one way to sort of frame it is to think about this question about responsibility. I mean, why do we care about identifying which of the things that a person's done are things that, you know, are intentional and and not? And often the the reason is because we want to 
understand, well, were they responsible? You know, should they be praised or rewarded for this thing? Or should they be punished if it was a bad thing? And did they know what they were doing? And sometimes those questions are about reward and punishment, but sometimes they're about making sense of somebody and their life and looking back on somebody and saying, you know, well, what kind of a person were they? And there it's going to be absolutely essential that we know, did they kill them out of revenge or was it a terrible accident? We really, you know, it's really important. As a person, Anscombe was an inspiring teacher with a great deal of time for her pupils. She encouraged them to dig as deep as they could and to avoid superficial and merely clever treatment of topics. She was also capable of being forceful and direct, some might even say rude. She was not afraid of controversy, nor yet indeed of offending people, especially when she thought that morally important matters were at stake. In 1956, she publicly opposed Oxford University's decision to award an honorary degree to Harry Truman. This was because of his responsibility for dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and thereby, on Anscombe's view, murdering large numbers of innocent people. So here the thought is Harry Truman was guilty of mass murder because he he ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, if all you've got to go on is this very anemic view about what action is, then all you can do is think, well, what were the consequences of him signing his name? And what would the consequences have been if he hadn't? And which of those is worse or better, if you like? Whereas once you move to this very rich, embedded descriptive philosophy that Anscombe is giving us, you can identify the descriptions under which he acted and what kinds of things he was doing when he was acting. And you can evaluate those action types rather than thinking about the consequences. So, for example, if you find out when you're imagining this sort of why set of questions of Truman that he killed the babies in order to stop the war, say, then you can identify that killing the babies is his intentional action. And you can take that action description as the thing that you're then going to evaluate, morally speaking. I mean, it's, it's not just that the prevailing philosophy of the last century privileged a certain kind of subjectivism or emotivism about the ethical. So that's the view that there aren't any ethical facts and it's just our feelings that we express which we have as individuals when we make moral judgments it's not just that she's got in her sights because she does her opponents the justice of recognizing that they are in some sense morally decent people who are trying with these rather inadequate materials allowed by emotivism and so on to give an account of what the difference is between a good action and bad action But her thought is that you're forced back on nothing but the consequences, just as you've said, Rachel, evaluating the consequences. And it may be that listeners find this implausible. I mean, I think the consequentialist way of thinking of things has got very deeply embedded what with cost-benefit analysis and uh, those kinds of ways of thinking, decision-theoretic ways of thinking about choices of action. I mean, just to see what might be at issue here, consider two questions. Is torture okay? Is it okay to debate this question of whether torture is okay open-mindedly? And saying yes to this latter question 
oh, it's okay to debate this question, we just have to look at the consequences of the torture, arguably comes from a very superficial and unimaginative take on human life for someone who hasn't really thought what torture is. And so one might well think that there was a kind of impoverishment of moral thinking that went on, for example, in the wake of the terrible bombings earlier this century that has debased public life recently, when it's become open to debate whether we shouldn't do certain absolutely terrible things. So it may be that Anscombe's examples of things that are absolutely unallowable, as this is where she goes, in rejecting consequentialism, the other side of that is recognising there are types of action that one just must not do whatever the consequences of not doing. Um, It may be that we might agree or disagree about what the categories of action are, but there might be such categories of absolutely unallowable actions is something that I think we could make ourselves um, sympathetic with. So can I quote another bit of Anscombe? If somebody really thinks in advance that it is open to question that such an action as procuring the judicial execution of the innocent should be quite excluded from consideration... I do not want to argue with him. He shows a corrupt mind. You know, if you rub people up the wrong way, and I think that thing of saying you show a corrupt mind, you know, has a sort of moralising tone that people don't like. But I think we can make it more palatable by two stages. So first of all is to think about this, this Wittgenstein injunction, you know, don't think, look. And the way in which that injunction on, say, torture emerges out of a really close and serious examination of what sorts of things we are and what matters to us as humans and so it's not plucked from the air it's not even plucked from the ten commandments it comes from a deep reflection on human nature and on what it is to live a life that's depraved and you know a life that involves torturing people is a depraved life because of the sorts of things that are of serious and deep importance to humans so that's where that sort of injunction comes from and I think it's important as well to see that she says if they want to argue before you know ahead of it that it's an open question that's the corruption so she's perfectly sensitive to the fact that in a terrible situation one might through weakness and fear and horror and you know whatever else do something terrible you know one might if faced with a threat to one's child torture somebody who knows what a fallible weak ordinary human would do in that situation so that's not morally corrupt that's a kind of tragedy or a sort of failure that is going to infect your life if you like but it's human the corruption she sees is the corruption of philosophers who have become so detached from a serious examination of what it is to be human that they're throwing around these examples of oh but you know if you could save a thousand people by torturing a baby of course you should do these examples that are casual and silly and not connecting with human life that then lead philosophers to say things like oh well of course it's always an open question whether or not one should kill a baby that's the corruption I think so it's important to see that the target there is is at that higher level not at the kind of messy difficulty of human life which of course we can all do terrible things in in that situation Among her contemporaries at Oxford were three other very able women, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch. They discussed philosophy intensively together and continued to be friends later in life. 
So the four women all started at Oxford just at the beginning of the Second World War. And whilst they were still doing their studies, conscription kicked in and and a lot of the male dons disappeared off to do war work and most of the male undergraduates as well. And then lots of sort of refugee scholars arrived and there were conscientious objectors and people who were too old to fight who were hung around. So if you imagine the way in which that must have changed, the whole dynamic of university life. And Mary Midgley talks about this shift in the seminar room from lots of clever young men competing to win arguments in order to impress the male don to a lot of people sitting around who are variously displaced and out of sync with everybody else, either because they're women or they're conscientious objectors or they're refugees. She says, we were trying to make sense of this deeply puzzling world. And I think mirroring that, Iris Murdoch says, we wanted to understand reality, transcendent or whatever. And then the men come back from the war and sort of pick up where they left off. And uh, Mary Midgley, who was a colleague of yours, of course, and a friend of mine as well, talks of this collective gasp from the four women that moral philosophy was going to carry on as if, you know, the concentration camps in Hiroshima had never occurred. And they're so shocked by this that Mary Midgley talks about their work together as starting from a joint no to that broader societal conversation which was saying you know oh well sometimes it's okay to torture people and you know maybe we ought to execute these war criminals without a proper trial and so they start from this joint no if you like born out of a context in which there's a lot of stuff to be very very serious about and then they use a lot of the same resources so one of the resources they all draw upon through Anscombe is Wittgenstein because as you say she goes to Cambridge she meets Wittgenstein so one thing she did was she facilitated Iris Murdoch's introduction to Wittgenstein which had a profound effect on her philosophy but also she was bringing back notes from the lectures and the notes that would become the philosophical investigations for these women before they were sort of in the public domain and so you've got this attitude of Wittgenstein's don't think look don't go for some general abstract theory but actually examine the shape of human life built in at the foundations there if you like and there are big differences in how they each pursue that project I think but that idea that the object of investigation is the whole of human life and what's required is that we look at that very carefully and very seriously and the reason we're doing that is because we want to understand what a human life that's going well looks like that I think is something that all four of them carry through their work and in different ways but also in dialogue with one another if you like and I think she found in the other women people who were equally dissatisfied with the story, but in Wittgenstein, the key to what was wrong with this, which is looking too much at these supposed little atoms, which we understand all by themselves, and not looking enough at the whole. So with Wittgenstein, she has found the tool to deconstruct this picture. But it's clear that she had... She did need to be sprung from it, as sprung from the trap, as it were, from the way she describes going to Wittgenstein's lectures and being released from the grip of phenomenalism, positivism. To me, what's really exciting about what she does is how 
an interest in logical, sort of intellectual interest in logical form, and these structures and how to pursue them and the implications of them, turns out to be the same interest as interest in what it is to live a decent life. So there's no boundary between, on the one hand, theoretical philosophy, which is dealing with logic and facts and science, and then there's just moral philosophy, which is dealing with nice feelings and ethical aspirations, and the two don't have anything to do with each other. They're absolutely one and the same when you think about what living a decent human life is like. You need this logical sensitivity to think straight. Otherwise, you'll get sucked into these superficial, potentially corrupt, thin, flat views of what life is like, and you won't engage with reality. reality. Exactly. Did you ever meet Anscombe Jane? Yes, I did, though I wouldn't ever say I knew her very well. When she came to Cambridge as a professor in 1970, I was a research student, and she knew my parents, who were philosophers in Oxford, and they were some of the philosophers she hadn't quarrelled with in Oxford, so that was all right. So she invited me round to lunch on a couple of occasions. I met her family, and she was very kind to me. We sat in the garden of their house in North Cambridge, with Peter Geach and the children, and had a sort of alfresco lunch. Very generous, relaxed, people coming and going, children's friends popping by and so on. So it was, I had a, got on with her fine. So on. But I found her formidable and frightening. And I think she had that effect on quite a lot of people. I was a young, fairly conventional young woman, and she was frightening. She didn't sort of go to put you at your ease with small talk, and this sense that you might be bitten at any point for saying something really stupid or sort of looked at, sort of askance. One had that sense. But she had the same effect (laughs) on quite a lot of people. I mean, she could be bullying, some might say, rude, so on. This is a story that Mary Midgley told, that she and Philippa Foote and Iris Murdoch and Elizabeth Anscombe, so the four of them, were in a coffee shop in Oxford and they were talking about rudeness. And the context was this kind of emotivism in philosophy, uh, moral philosophy that was very prevalent in Oxford at the time. And this idea that there are factual statements and then there are moral statements and there's no overlap between the two. So they were talking about rudeness as an example of, you know, if I say Jane's very rude, then that's a description, but there's also an evaluative aspect to that as well. So here we have a use of language that's at once descriptive and evaluative. So they were thinking about how to use that, you know, against the emotivist view, if you like. And so while they were kind of trying to think of examples, Iris Murdoch said, well, you know, for example, everybody would agree that Elizabeth is rude. And apparently she was mortally offended by this. She didn't know that people thought that she was rude. And she stood up and left the coffee shop in a fury. And apparently it took Iris Murdoch many weeks to repair the, the friendship. Yeah, so she had a reputation for being rude, but she didn't recognise, at least in this case, she didn't recognise it in herself, yeah. So that's the kind of person she was. I mean, but it's not, it seems to me, our business to judge whether she was or wasn't a nice person or could have been a nicer person and so on, but to see where it is coming from philosophically. And if you do think that there are decent ways to live a human life and ways to live a human life 
for example, where you've started, there's become serious public discourse about whether or not we should torture, which are just horrible. We absolutely should not go there. If you think that way, then you need to stand up fairly forcefully and say when the corruption has set in. So exactly how you do it or how you come over as a person, well, everybody's individuality and someone come over differently here. But you can't fault her for standing up. And it's a mistake, I think, to be drawn into thinking about personalities and what a funny personality she was, an interesting personality, should I say, and ignore the fundamentality of the philosophical moral questions that she's she's raising. That's where I think the interest lies. And one can forgive her a lot of rudeness and a lot of bluntness and many other things just for having opened up that whole space of enormously illuminating and invigorating discussion. She is remarkable in that she is a woman philosopher at a time when there were so very few around. And then to find her in conversation with these other three women is a really astonishing and provocative conversation to sort of listen in on, to think, well, what were these young women in the 1930s and 40s, you know, when women were not expected to be philosophizing? They weren't really expected to be doing very much. They certainly weren't expected to be philosophizing and having seven children. So I think one of the things that a colleague at Durham, Claire McCall, and I have been trying to do by talking about Anscombe in the context of these other four women is to try to offer an alternative sort of model of what philosophy is or might be, one that doesn't exclude in the way that the kind of standard model of the sort of lone male genius philosopher might. And I suppose the idea of philosophy as a conversation as well, in connection with a rejection of that sort of, I've got my thesis, I'm going to defend it, and you're going to attack me. But instead, well, this is a puzzle, let's all try and work it out together, that you can bring that aspect of her philosophy, if you like, to the fore by situating it in the context of this story of four women sat in a tea room, talking about rudeness, or sat in Philippa Foote's living room, worrying about hair. So certainly, I think this idea of the the great thinker is one that draws into it this idea of of isolation and and precisely excludes the sort of attention to the messy reality of human life that these women are all going for. I mean, you couldn't do the cogito if you've got seven children and you're sat in a house and they're all running around and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Jane. I think that's right. And it's really interesting that the the first person plural is coming back as a philosophical topic these days because we live our lives together. We're social animals. We're animals who have children who have to be brought up. That's a deep fact about us that gets ignored at our peril by certain approaches to the subject. Anscombe's work lays the framework for pursuing topics of this kind in epistemology, in political philosophy, in ethics, philosophical psychology, whatever. You can't honestly say that she does it in an overtly feminist way, but that isn't the point. The point is that these are the doors that open up when you think about things with the tools that she offers. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. 
To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work The British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.